1992, 10-year-old Michael Clancy grabbed a microphone and stepped in front of a camera and did a new thing. To be more specific, he did a new thing. He did courageously on a uh, kids' Christian TV show, he covered DC Talk's uh, title track from their album, New Thang. And it was amazing. He, uh, he was decked in Zubaz pants. You might remember those if you're a child of the 90s. I think he had on Reebok pumps. The uh, video's a little grainy, so it's hard to tell. And he danced, and he rapped, and he breathlessly sang the hook. And it was something to behold. And people actually got the chance to behold it when 20 years after it came out, uh, it, the video somehow made its way to YouTube and went viral. And at that point, Michael Clancy was not the same Michael Clancy. He, he had grown up. Uh, he was successful. He, he was, I think still is, an attorney in the Phoenix area and took it all with really good humor. It, wa it wasn't a good album. It wasn't a great song. Um, DC Talk had, uh, had a, a, a hidden um, element of talent that years later, I think, in their Jesus Freak album. Also hidden uh, within that song, within those lyrics, was, frankly, some sound theology. Not necessarily expressed in a way that uh, is timeless, uh, but but nonetheless is sound. I'm not going to rap, I promise, but I'll read it. My God is doing a brand new thing, but since time began, he remains the same, faithful forever to his word and solid, a cornerstone unstirred. But look down through the ages and you will find God doesn't change, but he knows the time. Something there of what we could call continuity and discontinuity where God is the same God from beginning to end. And from time to time, while he's consistent with himself and consistent with what he's doing, he does something noticeably new as well. Luke has been taking us there. I think much more tastefully than that song did. He, he's been taking us there throughout Luke. And what he's been focusing on earlier in the book is, uh, is continuity. We've seen that. We've seen continuity. Uh, we, we've seen that what God is doing now is rooted in what God has been doing from the very beginning, similar to what DC Talk describes. So we hear early on about Zechariah and Elizabeth who walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. That's in chapter one. Mary reflects on how God is helping his people as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Simeon, this old man, it seems in the temple had been waiting for the consolation of Israel until finally he's able to say, my eyes have seen your salvation. The arrival of Jesus in Luke is in line with everything that God has been doing so far. And when that arrival happens, it changes a lot of things, not simply by doing away with the old things, but by fulfilling the old things. 
after this point, some things will never be the same. It's not simply because the old is being replaced, but because the old is being fulfilled. And so because the new things that Jesus is doing fulfill the old things, we can expect them to look alike in certain key ways. They, they, in certain ways they do match. And in other ways they don't match at all because Jesus, as he, as he fulfills the old things is going to set them aside in favor of the new things that he is doing. In today's passage, Jesus is going to be asked why his disciples are different. And his answer is because new things are fulfilling old things. This morning in Luke 5, 33 to 39, Jesus brings a new way to make new people. Brings a new way to make new people. It's unexpected. People don't know what to make of it when they start seeing it happen. And yet it's real. We when we catch up with him, starting in verse 33, we're going to find him. I think he's still in Levi's house. Luke's not absolutely certain about that, but uh, there's no indication that the scenery has changed. It seems that he's still at Levi's house at the table with his disciples. And the newness of what he brings starts to become apparent almost immediately. And people start asking questions. Before we go any further, I just want to read the text. This is Luke five verses 33 through 39. If you're using a sanctuary copy of the Bible, then you'll find uh, Luke five on page 861 of that text. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. This is the word of the Lord. We start with a a challenge to Jesus in the form of a statement. There's kind of an implied question. The challenge is in verse 33. And Jesus really gives a a two-part response. One is an explanation of, of why his disciples are doing something new, something different. And, and then he, he gives a heads up that the new is not going to match the old. That's the second part of the response. So the first part is in verses 34 through 35. The second part, just this explanation that the new will not match the old is in verses 36 through 39. First, let's just, just take a minute to look at the challenge that's issued to Jesus about his disciples in verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So here are, here are two groups, two, two groups that are led by, we could call renewal leaders, the, the Pharisees and John the Baptist groups that are highly regarded by people who are taking seriously a desire to walk with God and to bring uh, God's people into fellowship with himself. 
and they fast. Uh, they, they go without food. In the case of the Pharisees, that could be uh, as many as twice a week where they go without food for a day or a certain part of a day. And in connection with that fasting, uh, they offer prayers and, and the pattern of Jesus disciples, even early on looks different from them. <clears throat> so the natural question would be why, why do Jesus followers do things so differently than the followers of other leaders, particularly with regard to this fasting and offering of prayers. It it helps us, first of all, to think about why it is that people fast in the first place. Why do people do that? Sometimes people do it because we just feel like, well, it's it's a good spiritual discipline to do, but more at the core at, at, at the, at the heart of fasting is the sense that things are not the way they're supposed to be. We, we have a hunger for something to change. Things are, are, are not the way they're supposed to be. And we hunger for them to be different. Even more specifically, we, we have a sense that the hungering is going to be worth it. There's an anticipation that there's something good to come that we need. We're not satisfied until it comes. And so we, we experience physical hunger as an expression of our longing for an even greater hunger, a hunger that we expect to be satisfied because God has promised that eventually he would. Something's not okay. And by feasting rather than fasting, Jesus followers act like everything is okay. And in this In one very important sense, in this moment, they are. They are okay. Because there is fulfillment here, the fulfillment of longing. And we see that starting in verses 34 to 35. In the Old Testament, God has frequently used the picture of marriage as a metaphor for his relationship with his people. Look at Hosea 2, uh, starting in verse 19. God says of his people, I I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. And he goes on to express the abundance of what he will do for the people that he will betroth to himself, the people that he will draw near to himself to be his own people. God doesn't simply say, I'm going to provide for you like a distant charity case. He says, I'm going to draw you near and make you mine. The promises that are made and longed for, they're longed for even by prayer and fasting. Perhaps if, if, uh, if you are a lady who's married, then you may on your wedding day have been given a very helpful piece of advice. Uh, Sometimes this needs to be given to brides. Uh, as they're on their wedding day, they're anticipating everything that's, that's going to happen. They're anticipating in a sense, the arrival of the groom and they have to be reminded, be sure to eat something because they're filled up with anticipation and they may forget to eat. And of course, if they don't eat, then they may faint. And that's a disaster at a wedding. We don't want that. There's, there's a longing and anticipation of something good that's going to happen. And sometimes we can just forget to eat. 
And here are God's people saying, excuse me, we've seen your provision. We've seen it. You've been faithful to us and we are not satisfied until we experience the nearness that you've promised. We want you to be with us. We, We want to experience the fulfillment of this betrothal that you promised. And now we see longing fulfilled. So feasting and not fasting is the appropriate expression because the groom is here. And those who have been waiting for him have good reason to celebrate. Of course, this arrival is not the only fulfillment that the people of God have been waiting for. This is uh, Jesus has arrived in order to do something. And right here in verse 35 is the first time in Luke that Jesus indicates what it is that he has arrived in order to do. The days will come, he says, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He is the bridegroom who will be taken away from them. Their sense of longing will return. At first, it will come in a way that's even more unexpected than the other things that Jesus is doing. And, and it will lead to an even greater desire and an even deeper sense of confident anticipation of what God will do. This bridegroom being taken away is the new way of making new people. That's what Jesus is doing here. New things take adjustments. They often do. They usually do. Sometimes they're exciting. Sometimes they make us go a little bit cross-eyed because we don't understand what to make of them. And that is certainly true of Jesus and the way in which he is received by those around him. And he's very straightforward about that. In verses 36 through 39, he uses three metaphors to describe how the new and the old cannot simply be combined together. And to be upfront, I think about the fact, the fact that when the new comes, it's going to take some adjustment for people. Each of the illustrations that he uses here, uh, two, two are kind of a two part parable. And then there's a, a proverb statement that he makes at the end. Each, each statement that he makes is a sort of a common sense illustration. He starts each one with no one, no one does this. Uh, this, this is something that everybody understands. You just plain don't do this. It's common sense. It doesn't work. Uh, if you try to combine the new with the old in real life, in certain ways, it leads to disaster. And Jesus is saying, that's what will happen here in a much more significant way. In real life, people know not to try to simply combine the old way with the new way because it breaks things and wastes things. And he's issuing a warning that you may be tempted to do that with the new things I'm bringing, but it will not work. So he gives, he gives a two part illustration, sort of common sense illustration, a parable. Luke says, starting in verse 36, he told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new And the piece from the new will not match the old. This is where Jesus makes clear that what he is doing is not simply a continuation 
of the old arrangement. It's, it's not simply an add on. He's not simply saying of the way that God has dealt with his people and the law that God has given to his people. He's not simply saying, look at long last, I have shown up with a final authoritative interpretation of the law. I can tell you everything that the law means. I can tell you exactly how long you can walk on a Sabbath day. I I, I can give you all the details so that finally you can keep the law. That is not at all what Jesus came to do. The new arrangement that Jesus brings and the old arrangement cannot simply coexist. If you try to stitch them together, they'll both be ruined. Neither one of them will be of any use to us. The old garment, the old arrangement needs to be replaced with an entirely new one. And that is what Jesus has come to do. Now he's speaking in parables here and he speaks of old and new, but he doesn't say in the parable exactly what he's referring to. Again, as we've seen before, Luke intends for Theophilus to read the whole book. I think he intends for Theophilus to ask the question, well, what is the new and what is the old specifically here that Jesus is dealing with? New language is used selectively in Luke, but it is used Strategically, it's not used a lot, but when it's used, it's used very meaningfully. And so uh, we're not going to read the whole book this morning, but I want us to get where Theophilus would get if he did. There's one other significant place where Jesus uses newness language, and that is in verse 22, chapter 22, rather, of Luke. Jesus comes together with his disciples around a table again. Chapter five is the first time that we see him at the table with his disciples. Chapter 22 is the last time he's at the table with his disciples. He speaks of newness the first time. So he does in the last time as well. And he tells them in verse 15 of chapter 22, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. I've brought something new. I have brought a new arrangement, a new relationship arrangement between God and his people. I've brought a new covenant. As, as he arrives, the people are under an old arrangement, an arrangement that is that's, that's based on laws that God has given to them. And Jesus is saying, I am bringing a new arrangement and you can't just stitch them together. My arrangement fulfills the old arrangement completely and therefore sets it aside as a way of relating to God. You can't just stitch them together. It didn't even work with the arrangement that God had given his people. A good arrangement. It was a good law. And I think all of us have a tendency to, uh, to 
sometimes maybe with, with, with old laws, but sometimes with laws that we just write for ourselves, we try to stitch those together with our trust in Jesus. One of the ways that, that I have been prone to do this over time is through a, a law that I kind of wrote for myself without even realizing it was a law. That in certain situations in life uh, where I haven't been told in the Bible what's right or wrong. Um, so I know I'm not supposed to kill people. I know I'm not supposed to steal. I know I'm supposed to be faithful to my wife. Those are answered questions, right? There are other questions in life that are not answered fully. Is it okay to spend this amount of money on this item or on going out to eat or entertainment or something like that? Is it okay to eat this or that, even though it might affect my health in a particular way? Some of you can relate to being virtually paralyzed by the sense that I, I have to know the right answer so that I can make sure I do the right thing. The challenge with something like that is that it, 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 it never gave me life and it actually distracted me and paralyzed me in some ways so much that it hindered me from doing real love for other people from actually caring for my family because I was so distracted with this unwritten law for myself that I have to get this right. I must. And the law was never even actually written. And yet I was operating under that law. Still, still working on uh, unstitching it. And yet having, having learned that having recognized it, it really has begun to set me free to not live under this law that I've written for myself, but to replace it, not simply by saying, you know what? God's gracious. He's not, he's not going to strike you down because you make a mistake. There's something better even than that. What's better is to say, I'm going to make a choice and I'm going to take a risk and Jesus is going to be there. And if I need to be corrected, he knows how to do it. He knows how to teach me by showing me ahead of time, or he knows how to teach me by teaching, by teaching me from my mistakes. My hope is not in knowing everything. My hope is not in always knowing exactly what's the right thing to do. My hope is in knowing Jesus. He has a new way of making new people. It doesn't match with my old way. Perhaps you have your own uh, unwritten laws. Maybe you got them from your parents. Maybe they were developed as coping mechanisms as a child. Maybe they came from friends. If it didn't work to stitch God's old arrangement with God's new arrangement, it's certainly not going to work to stitch my old arrangement with God's new one. Second illustration of this same principle is in verses 37 and 38. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So the way that wineskins work, the way that wine storage worked in the days of Jesus is, is that people would take the skin of a, uh, a goat or a sheep and the neck of the sheep would be the neck of the skin. Uh, we'd see that as a very strange way today as storing something that you're actually going to put inside your body, but it worked and they did it. And one of the things that they had to be careful with was the fact that of course, wine ferments and when wine ferments, then it expands. And so you need to put it inside of something that will expand when the wine does. Otherwise you're going to have a massive mess and waste on your hands. So that's the example that Jesus uses here. 
If you have new wine that hasn't yet fermented, you need to put it inside of something flexible. And in order for it to be flexible, it needs to be new. It needs to be something that has life to it. There's a picture here of an old arrangement, the wineskin, and the, the power inside of that arrangement. And the, the old arrangement cannot handle the new power of the new covenant. It can't be contained that the power of Christ to make new people cannot be contained inside of the old arrangement of the law. So it takes an entirely new arrangement. Jesus is saying that the covenant of the law has run its course. It served its purpose. It's good. And it's old. One more uh, illustration that Jesus gives us, gives us a very relevant warning in our relationship to the old, especially when the old is actually good. We're capable of getting the wrong conclusion from the goodness of the old thing. In this case, the goodness of the law that came from God himself. This is verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good. And very importantly, it is, it is good. It's from God. It was reliable for his people. And because the old actually is good, the challenge is that it can seem to be good enough. And it's not good enough. It's not good enough to do what God promised he would do for his people. It's not good enough to make new people. We need more than that. The old thing is not the same thing as the new thing. And that's one reason that people needed to be prepared for this new thing. They needed a preparer to go ahead of them to say, make straight the ways of the Lord. We need to be ready for him. They needed to be prepared in part because what he was going to do was going to, uh, was, was going to be new and was going to confuse some people. So that preparer came because everybody has to adjust to Jesus. That's actually an indication of how much we need him that we have to get used to his new ways. All of us have to adjust to him, including the preparer himself, including John the Baptist. So a little bit further on from our passage this morning in Luke five, John himself is going to go a little cross-eyed. Look at uh, Luke seven. Uh, this is a passage for later, but this is a picture here of wondering what is going on with this new person and his new ways. Jesus has been, uh, has been healing. He's been doing amazing things, including for outsiders. And in chapter seven, verse 18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And so the men come to Jesus and they report this question to Jesus. And Jesus at that time does some undeniable things that only God can do healing people, setting people free. And, and he says, go back and, and tell John, look, these, these things demonstrate that I'm the real deal. I'm the real thing. And, and then he says, verse 23, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. 
Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. He has to send that message back to his own preparer, John the Baptist. These, these things, John, look new. They're, they're, they're maybe not entirely even what you expected. And you're a little bit confused because the new fulfills the old. And so while it's consistent with it, it does look different, but it's real. It's my new way of making new people. The law was good and it promised something better, something new life offered in Jesus and life offered in the law can't go on existing together. It will ruin them both. If we try to make them do it. What about for us today? Remember what Jesus is doing at the table here. He's calling sinners to repentance. He's calling people to be new people. He's going to make that possible. He's calling them to turn from whatever they're trusting to him for forgiveness and cleansing. And that's not merely a one-time thing, is it? Are you done yet? Are you you not done listening? That that wasn't an offer. Are, Are you done? Are you done being made new? No, we're not done being made new. Do you see that as good news? Do you see the remaining change in your life? Maybe as a Christian who's been a Christian for 40 years, do you see the remaining need for change as bad news or as good news? Jesus came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God, the good news that he's going to make new people. That good news is still good news for you today, that there is more newness, more of the image of Christ for you to experience this is expressed actually in the passage that we read earlier. I'm just going to read second Corinthians three, verse 18. As Paul is comparing the old covenant that was good and glorious and its glory faded and was replaced by something with unfading glory, the new covenant in Jesus. And here's what this does for us today. Second Corinthians three, 18. And we all with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Have you been operating in a place as a a new person where you've, you've kind of been thinking and acting as if you're done being made new? Are you kind of stuck there? Have you asked the Lord recently, Lord, would you do a new thing in me? I know I'm not done being made new. Would you do a new thing in me? Is that a little bit scary sometimes? What's this going to take? What needs to change in me? I'm kind of comfortable where I am. It's always good news when God does new things in us. I want to encourage you. If you haven't asked the Lord that recently, ask him, Lord, what is it? Where's my blind spot? Uh, Where am I not yet like Christ? Where I have the opportunity to be more like Christ. Would you do a new thing in me? Maybe you know where it is. Maybe, maybe you, you know where you're stuck. You know, what's causing problems in your life and you're tired of it. And you feel like, is this, is this the end of the road? What we celebrate even this morning is that it is not the end of the road. The law Couldn't do it. The law couldn't make you new. No law can make you new. 
Jesus and his finished work for you, his life for you, his death for you, his resurrection, his interceding for you. He can make you new. He may, he may, he, he may intend to do that in ways that you don't even expect, but he can, and he will, and he has the power to do it. Jesus has brought a new way to make new people. So this morning, uh, we focus on different aspects of the finished work of Jesus as we spend time remembering what Jesus has done uh, through the Lord's table, through communion. We're going to celebrate this together in, in just a little while. And the thing that I'd encourage you to focus on today is the fact that because of what Jesus has done, it, it is possible. There is power for you. you. You may not be able to figure it out. You may not be able to figure out how to do it. You don't have to. God has for you. He is able to make you newer. He's able to do a new thing in you today. This is an expression of the power that he has to do that. Father, we, we need this. We are not capable of making ourselves new. We're not capable of seeing ourselves uh, in the way that we need to see ourselves. Uh, we need to see Christ. Uh, we need to see him in new ways. We need your spirit to reveal him to us so that we can be transformed to the next degree of glory to be more like him. We thank you that you haven't left us to a system that, uh, that is dependent on our failing incapable effort. We thank you that you have finished this work for us and through that work, given us your spirit so that we can joyfully hungrily anticipate being made new. We pray this in Jesus name.